Hi everybody, this is Carlos Sestinian and I'm reading Shoemakers of Dreams, the autobiography by Salvatore Ferragamo. I need to go on page 155. Here it is, and I'm reading a chapter called The Healing Shoes. As 1938 moved into 1939, I could feel myself once again secure. The dream I had cherished in 1927 was gradually becoming true. My shoes were now selling in Britain, America, Holland, France, Switzerland, Germany, Czechoslovakia, Canada, and Australia. In Italy, I had added to my salon in Florence and a salon in Rome, one in Milan as well. Within months, I opened new ones in Turin, Genoa, the Lido, and at Venice, Naples, and Viareggio Salon, which took on the aspect of clubs rather than shoe shops. Fashionable women meeting in distant parts of the world, in New York or London or Johannesburg, would say to each other, see you at the Ferragamo Salon, in Florence or in Rome or in Venice, at such and such time and on such and such day, perhaps months hence. My customers now extended through the elite of the most of every country. Queen Elena of Italy, wife of the King Victoria Manuel III, sent for me. I made uh, the shoes for the wedding of Princess Maria Jose, of uh, daughter of the King of the Belgians, the prince later for a brief while King Umberto. Mussolini came to me with the corns and calluses. His mistress, Cleta Petacci, came to me. Eva Brown, Hitler's mistress, came surrounded by Nazi guards. One morning, four queens sat at the same time in four corners of my room salon, the queens of Yugoslavia, Greece, Spain, and the Belgians. The Maharani of Kuch Behar ordered a hundred pairs of my shoes. Duchess and countess, the wives of wealthy businessmen, uh, came and sent their orders and bought my shoes where they could be found. Why? Why did they come to me? There are tens of thousands of shoemakers in the world. There are scores of famous shoemakers in the world of fashion. In every great city of a civilized world, there are fine designers, fine stylists, fine modelists. In this respects, I consider myself in no way unique. And even if I were, it would be impossible to keep myself the fruits of my creative powers. My ideas appear and other steals. Though, I patterned my new designs to protect myself as far as I can. For instance, not long ago, a fashion house in Paris exhibited a series of my styles, and a French designer probably demanded that they were to be removed from the windows because they said they infringed his patent, taken out on that year in France. Fashion house worried, wrote me at once. I replied with a copy of my own patent, taken out 12 years earlier in Italy. Yet, if I hold little of any advantage over others in my art and craft, how is it possible for me to capture the elite trade of the world? How was it possible for a young man and a foreign to attract custom of the leading film stars in Hollywood? How was it possible for a bankrupt in 1933 to own within five and a half years a great palace and a beautiful villa? And above all, number among his clients, the greatest names in the world. 
I believe the answer is simple. I believe that this is due to nature. For I discovered during these exciting times and years that nature heals her wounds when she's giving her freedom. I discovered that my fitting not only made the feet of my customer comfortable, it set free their damaged feet and nature, responding as she always will when she's given the chance heal them. When it's more, she's not only heals the feet, she heals those worst diseases, which spring from the effects of bad feet, the diseases which sponge on the human frame and mind when the body is immobilized and tortured by ruined feet. I discovered my beneficial effects on nature and on the foot that is correctly should uh, quite soon after I had adopted my revolutionary fitting. I saw the effects on the feet of actors like John Barrymore, whose arches were falling due to bad shoes as a child, and on the feet of the actress like Corinne Griffith, who came to me with terrible feet. This example were multiplied by many times over the times and years to come. Mussolini lost his corns and had bad toenails. After he wore my boots, Queen Elena had bad feet. They were long and aristocratic, but difficult to fit. And the Princess Maria Jose also suffered with her feet. Mara Palmer, wife of the leading United States journalist, came to me in her search for someone to make her walk. She has exceptionally high arch and narrow foot and a heel. And for years, she bad suffered from a distorted metatarsal joint and an invisible exposure under the foot. At this people and many more gave me the evidence of good fitting on bad feet. But it was after my bankruptcy in 1933 that I began to realize to the full how deep and widespread are the diseases and disorder which follow from bad feet and how magnificent nature can be when she's helped instead of hindered. I also discovered the appalling extent of our neglect to our feet. Feet are not important in our scheme of things. We treat them with ingratitude. We call upon them at all hours, in all weathers, for all distances, and we take less care of them than we do with our teeth, which we don't use half as much. You, signora, signor, I'm sure scrub your teeth twice a day, and, and if your parent insists on your children doing also, Yet, how often do you inspect your children's feet to see if they are good in shape and in their molars? How often do you take your own feet into your hands and look them, really inspected them, perhaps not until I directed your attention to them a few chapters ago and made you aware of what to look for? And that is the main reason for our neglect of our feet. Ignorance. We simply do not know what to look for and no one tells us. How often, Signora, when do you have been falling ill and you have consulted your doctor? Has he taken your feet in your hands and examined the bone structure, probing to find out if there were good feet? He no doubt tapped your chest and back and prodded your stomach or took your temperature. But did he take your feet in his hands and examine them? If he did, you are luckier than any of the women who have come to my salons with ruined feet. Not one, Signora, not one. When I have asked them the question, 
has been able to say, yes, my doctor gave me my feet, a thorough inspection said so-and-so, not even mind you, when the feet were obviously ruined, when the arch had fallen and the toes were twisted, this woman's invariable answer is, he looked at them and prescribed so-and-so or such-and-such, an arch preserver or a bunion pad or a heel pad or one of the other useless cures. If you consider the situation dispassionately, it becomes monstrous. Nature gives us an ample warning of everything that is wrong with our bodies and especially of what is wrong with our feet. This is the first warning is a tiredness in the feet, a reluctance to carry out weight of any further. Gradually, tiredness becomes more frequent and pronounced. We can walk less far without feeling that we must. Put up your feet and get into low-heeled shoes and run about in stocking-jet feet. Later still, there is pain from the exposed joint. There are effects too because tiredness and physical weakness affect the nerves. We become irritable, bad-tempered, nervy, yes, and even mentally imbalanced. We shout at our children and we speak angrily to our husbands. Eventually, we can become unbearable to those near us. We may even reach a nervous breakdown or cross the verge of sanity. That is not all. There are three things we must do regularly for complete body health. We must breathe, then we must eat, finally we must walk. Walking stimulates the circulation of the blood and keeps us fit in the body and in the mind. After a long walk, we should feel better, not worse. If we walk correctly, we do not maltreat the feet. We massage them. They should glow with health and as our bodies do after a swim or a shower. The moment we begin to mobilize the feet, the body, because we cannot bear the walk, there begins a progressive deterioration of the bodily function, like muscles cease to capable of the doing of their duty. They atrophy, just as they atrophy when you are sick in a hospital for months to end. When I left hospital after my car accident, I had to teach my good leg to walk again, as well as my injured one. So it is though less dramatically at first, when the feet prevent us from walking. If we are the listing gland in the corpulence, the mobilization of our bodies makes us fat. How many of ladies who spend time and money studying diets and food charts have even given a thought to their feet? If they have been and have probably decided that nothing can be done about them and they must be trying something else, Turn to slim. Signora, it will do you not. If the corpulence is due to the immobilization of the body by lack of physical exercise, it will continue until it brings it is trained to ills of which doctors are well aware. Shortness of breath, fatty deterioration of heart, and a score of other diseases, which have their roots, in fact, to the body, is being asked to carry weight to gross for it. Of course, I'm not suggesting that bad feet are only cause all diseases, but I do say that is that if you have bad feet, they may be the cause of other diseases. So learning that I need to look after my feet. Let me give you a few examples. 
On day late in 1933, she was among the earliest of my consumers. Uh, after my bankruptcy, a young woman, not yet 40, walked into the shop and I had opened in Via Tornabuoni. She was rich, the owner of several properties around Florence, and she was elephantine. She stepped from her car and walked slowly across the pavement. For years, her feet had been so painful that she had walked no further than the distance from the bedroom to her lounge, from her lounge to her car, and from her car into the shops where she bought her clothes and her shoes and had her hair dressed. Her feet were small and looked incongruous against her enormous bulk. She was also so fat that the flesh dripped over from her shoes in great rolls. I had never seen her before, and her first request was a pair of beautiful shoes. I took her feet in my hand and I saw how terribly they were damaged. I said, Madam, first I will make you walk. She was skeptical, she said. No one can do that. I have not walked in any distance for years. I've been to doctors and more doctors, and they've given me all sorts of cures, but nothing helps me. I shall not go getting fatter until I die. I have come to you for beautiful shoes. You do not need beautiful shoes for sitting around in your house, playing cards, receiving guests, I said. You need shoes that will make you walk. Of course, I will make your walking shoes look as beautiful as I can. But first, I will make the shoes that will enable you to walk again. Because I was so busy and because my shop was always so full and she was so huge, she came to me every lunchtime for weeks. I would say she spoiled every lunchtime for weeks if she had not enjoyed so enormously the challenge to my shoemaking. I freed her feet from crippling effects of bad shoes and enabled her to walk. Nature did the rest, and the last, she came no more. Her feet were restored, her health, and today, and more than 20 years afterwards, she's still walking around Florence and striding over her properties with a slim and ankle as you will find anywhere, and a good figure as any woman of her age. In 1935, another Florentine woman came to me. She weighed about 260 and was more than 19 stone. She was over 60 last year, aged over 80. She died of old age, walking in her last, weighing no more than 11 stones. Mr. Schilling of California, the wife of the owner of Schilling's, uh, to me, she has lost 65 LB, 4 stones. A leading public official in Florence, who was also a great friend, uh, confined in one of the day that his wife was becoming unbearable. Her temper was uncontrollable. I suggested that I have examined by a doctor friend of mine, and the doctor's private remark to the afterward was, Salvatore, I am afraid her mind is slightly unbalanced. I refused to believe it. I was talking to her the other night. I said, and she was discussing astronomy, science, Shakespeare, and music, and rationally and intelligently, as or I perhaps more so. That doesn't sound like madness. He nodded thoroughly and examined her again. He prescribed sedatives, concluding that she was simply highly strong and nervous. Yet her temper did not improve. The people, though good friends of mine, were not customers. Public official and husband. 
could not afford my shoes and had refused to allow me to make his wife a good fit of grounds if it was discovered he might accuse of taking a bribe. One day, however, sometime after his remarks to me, the doctor's examination of his wife, they arrived at my salon. Salvatore, he said, it's our wedding anniversary and I have decided to give my wife a pair of your shoes. As she removed her shoes, I knelt down and took her foot in my hand. I looked up at her husband immediately and said, I can tell you exactly what is the cause of the remarks you made me uh, some time ago. Your wife is wearing the wrong sort of shoes, she said instantly. But that's what I've been telling him for months. I couldn't walk. I don't feel like walking. I don't take a few steps in the house. And even if I have, I will have to sit down. It makes me so miserable and so upset. A few weeks later, the husband came to me in awe and wonder, What have you done to my wife? He asked. She's a different woman. How many times has that happened? Husband and sweethearts, sons and brothers. More often than the woman themselves, I've come to my son and said to the words, What have you done to her? She's a different woman. Within the last two or three years, two specialists have sent me a mental cases. A few weeks ago, while I was engaged on writing on this book, I met one of them in Naples. He said, what did you do to that woman I sent you? I said, I made some shoes. How is she? She's fine, he said. She has lost her hallucinations. Only now she has got a new one. Oh, I said, what's that? She's utterly convinced that her mental breakdowns was entirely due to her bad shoes and now no one can stop her from walking. Fine, I said. She's not doing anyone any harm, is she? Countess Vivarelli Colonna of Florence developed a dreadful cold on her soul of her foot. It grew of such proportion that she at last consulted her doctor who advised its removal by radium treatment. Unfortunately, though the radium got rid of the corn, it was misapplied and burned her foot badly. For three years, she could not walk at all. One day, she changed her doctor and she went to see Professor Vincenzo Lapicciarella, who knew of several cases I had helped. By fitting correct shoes and relieve wounded part of the foot, as she asked her to come to me, I constructed a shoe which supported her arch and left her damaged sole over the foot suspended in space. In four weeks, the wound had had healed. Another similar case concerned the Duke of Savoy, Aosta. Later, for a brief time during Mussolini Yugoslavian conquest, the King of Croatia who nine years before he came to me and he'd been involved in a motorboat accident in which he smashed the arch of his foot. When the wood had healed, he was released from hospital. But within a short time, this wound had reopened. The pounding of his toes against his boots had driven the weakened bone against the arch and pushed it through the flesh, causing him to bleed. The Duke was a headstrong, active man and refused to go back into the hospital for nine years. Despite all the treatment he received from various doctors, the wound remained open, bleeding continuously. One day, Princess Maria Jose of Italy suggested that he consult me. The Duke was skeptical. What can Ferragamo do? He's only a shoemaker, he said. The princess insisted. And later, when the Duke visited a doctor who happened to know 
of the work I had done in other cases, the doctor also advised him to come to me. I well remember his arrival. He joked about the injury, saying, I never considered myself as likely to qualify as a saint. The other thing, yes, but now I've got this bleeding. I'm not quite sure. I made him some boots and some shoes. Two months later, the wound had healed. Thereafter, I made every piece of footwear for him. Hunting shoes, golf shoes, riding and fishing boots. And once when he was going on the expedition somewhere or other pair of waterproof boots so that he could keep his feet dry if he should and have to wait from his vessel to the land. On a lighter and a quite irrelevant note, I remember reading in the newspapers the day before he was due to visit me for a fitting that Mussolini had appointed him King of Croatia, not then being conversant with the correct form of address of reigning monarchs, I saw advice. The next day, he, uh, he walked in and I greeted him with the Italian equivalent of your majesty. He gave me a look, blew a raspberry at himself and said, do I look like one of those? I read about it in the newspaper, I explained. Yes, he said. And as soon as you will read the newspaper, that I shall never go there. In 1940, to jump ahead to a strict chronological order, to a little chance, offered me the opportunity of proving a miracle nature powers of healing in another way, by forcing a damaged foot to walk properly. It occurred soon after my marriage. My wife had a nephew, seven years old son, three years old later, suffered from an attack of infantile paralysis, which had left one foot crippled. He walked with the aid of a cane dragged, his injured limb behind him. My treatment was to make him a pair of shoes on a different system. I fitted the damaged foot, a perfect shoe, on the good foot and fitted a good shoe so they constructed the moment that he puts up his foot to the ground. He complained that I was hurting him. It was precisely what I wanted to do. The pain in his good foot and the comfort in the crippled one forced him to use the other foot he never expected to use again. Within eight to ten weeks, he had discarded his cane and he was walking normally. Then I made him shoes which were comfortable on both feet. Most interesting feature of the case was the form I fitted the first shoe. The damaged foot grew at the same rate as the good one. Oh, since that date... I have used a similar technique on many other feet damaged by infantile paralysis or strokes. When I had been able to attend the injury within a few months of paralysis, restoration to health has been so rapid that both feet have remained the same length. In the many cases that I have enlisted the aid of doctors, careful measurements have been taken. And in some cases, the shortness in the damaged foot has actually improved. That is, the damaged foot has grown slightly more in comparison with the grown of the good foot. In no case has this shortening become more pronounced. However, perhaps I've said enough to convince you, not only bad feet cause diseases which are apparently unconnected with foot trouble, but also that when you're correctly shot, the diseases disappear and the feet restore themselves to health. Now I must touch upon existing cures. With which we are afflicted. You may not be convinced by the correct fitting of shoe. 
is the only method of curing those diseases and deformities. You may not even resent my remark about paddings and arch preservers being used as cures. What I'm afraid I cannot retract. They are not only useless, but sometimes worse than useless. I will begin with the problem of the superficial damage, corns, calluses, and ingrowing toenails, the amusing disabilities, amusing until you suffer from them, which can, and often do, cause a great deal of pain. Corns and calluses are pronounced by friction. If the skin of the foot rubs continually against the part of the shoe, instead of moving with the shoe, nature in self-defense produces a thick, hard skin to protect the foot, blistering and bleeding. If the cause of the friction is removed, corns and calluses disappear. I remember vividly that when I was a working shoemaker cutting my own leather, I developed a corn on the inside of my hand, which I held the leather just below the knuckle of my index finger. It grew so badly that eventually I could use, scarcely use my hand. I began to worry and consulted doctors. On one hand, they, they all advised an operation. They decided that it was more of a wharf than a corn or one of them. He happened to be a personal friend. He was and most insisted that it was to be cut out. Unless we can get the root out, it will be useless, he said. I've always detested surgical invasion of the flesh and probably refused. If the price of losing the corn was to have my hand cut, I would have to keep the corn. Besides, I was sure it would return whatever they said about the roots. Later on in Hollywood, I no longer made the shoes myself and so no longer cuts the leathers. The corn disappeared, leaving no trace. After my bankruptcy, I had to return to my shoemaking and the corn reappeared in the same place. I did not worry. I knew it would go away. And in time after I had again ceased to make the shoes myself, Julie, it vanished. To today, there is no trace of my hands that has been uh, a corn. Corn and calluses and pads, therefore, are finally useless. They applied them to corn is softened and can be removed, or the callus is protected and disappears. You are happy and walk without the pads for a little while. Soon, however, the corn and the callus repair in the same place because you have not removed the cause of the growth. The shoes are still fighting against those portions of your skin, and no matter how many pads you apply, the corns and calluses will continue to appear until you fit the correct shoes. Then growing toenails is caused by wearing shoes, which are too short. The nail at the end of the toe touches the shoe, and the back pressure receives its walking prevents the natural growth. The side of the nail has more space to grow because it does not touch the shoe and then the nails grows into the flesh. While the corn can easily be reminded, though not cured, without any recourse to doctors and operations. When you trim the offending nail, you must be careful to cut it out completely from the edge to edge. If you leave any tiny sliver of nail at the edge, it will continue to grow further and further into the flesh. If, however, you cut correctly, you can lift the whole of the severed part of the nail right out. It will have a reappear as soon as the nail grows long again unless you change your shoes. 
and give the toes freedom to move. To turn to the outward signs of the falling arch, the Banyan pack gives an illusion and comfort because it's so constructed that the material protects the Banyan from painful friction because the joint becomes more and more pushed to the shape. The pad does not cure the arch, it's still collapsing and the toe is still seeking for a place to go. The banyan is still making a deeper hole and need a progressively larger pad and as a continuing twisting joint becomes more pronounced. The pad between the toes is even less useful if it's actively damaging. It is designed to straighten the toes, but if it's not, the toe, which is twisting of its own accord, it is the metatarsal joint which is pushing forward. The effort to straighten the toes only results in the joint's torn ligaments because you're preventing the toe from finding the line of the least resistance. Those you throw are even greater burden on the joint and on the arch behind. The same explanation is true on the pads designed to go between other toes than the first one and the second. There remains the arch preserver. Surely, if my theory and my practice demand the support of the arch, I can wholeheartedly approve of the arch preserver? I'm afraid I cannot. An arch preserver fitted inside an ill-fitting shoe is the equivalent of the last shot of liquor taken by a drunken man to make him unconscious. It is true that if your feet are painting, your art preserver will give you the illusion of relief, but as long as the plate under the foot is based in the bad principle of resting on the heel, and the ball of the foot will go where the shoe goes, eventually the remedy will prove worse than the deformation designed to cure. What about the specialists? Surely they have the answer, yes. Signora, have you have the answer? Got to a hundred orthopedists, and you receive a hundred different cures. I do not know if one of them are right. Perhaps they are. But I know that unless their theories are based on the principle of the support of the arch while you walk, they cannot cure. One orthopedist I know of him because one of my customers came to me after adopting his treatment. Building a shoe to the line of the foot takes a plaster cast which reveals unexpected bumps and hollows on the feet. You may not be able to see them, and to your foot probably looks smooth and rounded, but in fact it is a mass of small elevations and depressions which become startlingly visible on the plaster cast. This specialist builds on the shoes precisely to the line of the foot, taking into account every bump and every depression. What happens? Six months later, when the patient returns for a new shoe, the new cast is taken, and the hollows of the bumps are seen to be more pronounced than ever. After 18 months and two years, the lumps stand out like nuts. Visible to unstraightened naked eye. Why? Because the nature always takes the line of the least resistance. If the foot cannot go the way nature herself has designed it, it will go where it is easiest. In this case, it grows into the hollows, which the specialist has thoughtfully created.
for it.